This is the Innovation Engine Podcast. Since 2014, we've been bringing you talks with some of the world's leading authorities on innovation. Topics we cover include emerging trends and technologies, corporate leadership, company culture, and more. Coming to you from Three Pillar Global's headquarters in Fairfax, Virginia, here's your host, Will Sherlin. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. On this week's episode, we'll be talking with the head of the World Bank's Innovation Labs, Adarsh Desai, about innovation and international development. We'll look at how the World Bank's Innovation Labs are working to eradicate extreme poverty, how big data and open data are helping to fuel that mission, and how the World Bank uses human-centered design to improve the lives of citizens in their client countries. Here with us today to discuss all that and more is Adarsh Desai. Adarsh leads the World Bank Group's Innovation Labs, overseeing a variety of programs, ranging from innovations in big data analytics and social enterprise, to the open aid partnership and human-centered design. He's passionate about leveraging technology and data-driven innovations for international development, and he has managed programs on big data analytics, ICT-enabled citizen engagement, open innovations, geospatial data, e-learning, and other technology-enabled platforms. In his prior work at the World Bank, Adarsh also worked on the Global Development Learning Network and ICT for Education programs in Africa. He coordinated the Global Survey on Education Readiness in collaboration with the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. Adarsh holds a master's degree in software engineering and information systems management from the George Washington University and a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering from MS University in Baroda, India. Welcome to the podcast, Adarsh, and thanks for having us to the World Bank. Thanks, Will. Very happy to be here. Absolutely. So let's kick things off today talking about the Innovation Labs at the bank since you're the head of it. What is the role of the Innovation Labs at the World Bank and what kinds of projects are you and the labs currently working on? Sure. So before I go to talk about the Innovation Labs, let me talk about, um, so you probably heard and maybe listeners also heard about the new Sustainable Development Goals. These are kind of the global targets that the United Nations and all the countries around the world have agreed to achieve by 2030. Now, there's a wide recognition that to achieve some of these goals, kind of the business as usual or the existing solutions are not going to be sufficient. So there's there's wide recognition that, that there are certain goals, like if it's related to climate or water or something, you would, the countries and the world would itself would need some innovations. So, so, so kind of we, we, we step, we kind of taking our, our, our cues from there and saying, therefore, we know that the innovation is necessary. Not all problems can be resolved with the solutions we have today. Therefore, what and how the World Bank can play a role in, in, in scaling, one in surfacing, second in scaling those innovations and bringing to our client countries, our client governments. So part of our role within the World Bank Group, we are a very small unit, but part of our role is to surface both internal and external innovations. The World Bank staff is very creative. They're people with a ton of ideas. 
but often some of those good ideas uh, remain ideas and they don't they don't mature into specific products or solutions or interventions in the client country. So part of what we do is to to surface those innovations, whether they are internally created or whether they are generated outside. The second bit is to then um, identify of those innovations what are promising, uh, what problem do they solve, and then work with our operational teams, whether it's in health or agriculture, whether it's in Asia or Africa or other regions, to saying how can these innovations be used to solve particular problems that our clients are facing. So broadly speaking, we have three objectives as an innovation lab. Mm-hmm. One is to accelerate the adoption of emerging innovations, and I'll talk in a minute about what we mean by emerging innovations in, in and through the bank operations. Two is to focus on uh, the culture within the bank group. I mean, we are, we are a traditional old institution, and, and therefore our culture itself is not like the Silicon Valley, right? I mean, we are not here... Um, uh, risk-taking isn't always part of the culture, and so on. So thinking, how can we make the culture more conducive for the innovations and kind of informed risk-taking to happen more often? Uh, and three is to also think and build and institutionalize capabilities on both doing innovation and also managing innovation. While there's a lot of innovation that's happening, we do not have a clear strategy around innovation, nor do we have clear systems or processes around how we make sense of the innovations, how we manage it, and and how we systematically vet and scale some of those innovations. Okay, nice. We'll talk about all of that over the course of the episode, but let me ask a, a question about big data So for those that may not be familiar with the bank, one of its big, hairy, audacious goals is to stamp out extreme poverty by 2030. And one of your personal areas of interest is big data. So how are you looking to harness or how are you already harnessing the power of big data to help do that? So big data, as we know, has been harnessed very effectively by the private sector. Uh, whether it's for selling more products or connecting us to people. We all know how Google, Facebook, Amazon, G's of the world are using it. So the question we are asking is, how can big data be used for delivering social good? How can big data be used for addressing or helping solve some of the problems that our clients face? So let me share with you a few examples of where and how we are uh, we begin to use big data. So in the countries that we work in, where the World Bank works in, one of the key challenges is um, doing electrification in, in rural villages. We know that there are thousands and thousands of villages, whether it's in Asia or Africa or other parts of the world, which currently do not have access to electricity. So one big challenge that the governments face, as well as the bank faces, is how do you monitor whether the, the electrification programs are working, whether they are reaching the villages that they are supposed to, and where the villages have electricity, whether they are, whether they are receiving reliable electricity over a period of time. Mm-hmm. So let's take India as an example. India has 650,000 villages. So now imagine if you are the government, if you are trying to deliver electricity, you are trying to connect more and more of the rural villages, if you're trying to monitor of the villages that are already connected, it's a very tough task to do. So one um, solution, potential solution, is to look at nighttime images that are taken by satellites. As the satellites 
pass through these countries. Usually, if they pass between 8 and kind of 10 p.m. or so, um, they, they take photographs. And you can use the photographs and use kind of the computer algorithms to, to figure out which of the villages have electricity and which don't, just by measuring the intensity of the light that is captured through those images. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's kind, of a, uh, kind of a cool example, which is also very relevant that we are working on. So soon in, in coming weeks, we'll, we'll hopefully launch a prototype that, that, will, that will allow anybody to go point to a village and see how... Uh, the, the electricity or the luminosity has changed since last 10 years. Now, beauty of satellites is that you have a very deep historical record. So that's one example. Mm -hmm. Another example is related to uh, typical urban problems. And most of the cities are growing rapidly. Um, typical issue, just like we have in D.C., is traffic. Sure. And, and the cities have to figure out how to make sense of the traffic where the traffic congestion is, uh, what roads are the bottleneck. Now, in, in, in kind of the developed economies, you have sensors on the road, the traffic lights have sensors, there are cameras and so on. So, so it's, it's somewhat easier to, to understand and monitor and, and kind of get a sense of the traffic patterns. But in the countries and the cities we work on, these sensors don't exist. And even if they are, they, they are not reliable, they break down and so on. So we're trying to get sense of... Is there a source of data that can be used? And, 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 and there is now. So in many cities, you have taxis like Uber, which are collecting GPS data as they do their business. Um, and, and in some cases, um, for example, in Philippines, um, the taxi agency is, is open enough to, to share the data. So we are looking at the data, and we are analyzing it, and we are, we are creating a map of, you know, you can do it an hour-by-hour, minute-by-minute map of where the traffic congestions happen. And now we are feeding that data to the World Bank teams, to kind of the public agencies within the cities, and saying, how can this data be used to, to feed into the planning for roads, for public transportation systems, for even kind of changing the timing of the traffic lights. So that's kind of another example, uh, how we are using it. I'll, I'll, I'll share maybe a couple of more examples. So one is, you know, one big challenge we face and our client countries face is that many countries in the world still do not have accurate poverty estimates, right? So one of our goals is to eliminate extreme poverty, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Now, the question is, how do you know whether you're making progress towards this goal if you do not have reliable access to the data? Now, traditional way of catching, capturing the data is to is by doing kind of household surveys, which gives you a very robust sense of data. But in the countries where we work in, in some of the countries, it's very difficult to do it. One, if it's a, for example, if it's a fragile country, when just going to door to door to do the surveys becomes very difficult. Also, it costs a lot of money and time, and often countries don't have that luxury, so to speak. So we are looking at other sources of data and saying, does it give us a good enough poverty estimate? So we're also looking at two sources of data. One is the work that, that the colleagues in kind of the poverty team are doing in, in Sri Lanka. We're looking at satellite images and, and, and kind of creating an algorithm based on, based on the type of structure you see, based on the number of cars you see, based on the type of roads you see in the neighborhood to get a sense of kind of the socioeconomic status of that particular area, right? Mm -hmm. Is it as good as the household survey? Probably not, but is it better than no, no data at all, right? right? So uh, another area which is widely used by, I guess, the 
um, I guess the marketeers or, or the social media companies of the world is kind of understanding sentiment, typically for selling products or services. What we're trying to do is to say, can we understand sentiment uh, of youth, uh, of, of, of citizens in, 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 in the region around government policy, around service delivery issues? And, and can we use that to better inform our client countries to formulate either policies or interventions? Uh, and, and therefore, can we look at the social media as a source of that data to understand what 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 are the issues that 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 the population is is, is worried about or is facing, uh, and, and can 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 we use that to to inform our policy uh, dialogues with the governments or help governments make informed choices? So that's kind of another example of how we are using big data. Okay, so let me stick with data for a second and ask you about a, a, an endeavor that you have underway at the World Bank called the Open Data Initiative. It's been used to provide insights at the local level into things like where malnourishment is abnormally high. So what are some of the ways you're using the Open Data Initiative to better inform your client countries? So there are two ways to look at open data. One is the data that the World Bank has, the World Bank owns, or the World Bank curates. Mm -hmm. So World Bank's adopted an open data policy a few years ago, and where we make most of our key macroeconomic um, indicators data openly accessible to anybody who wants it. It has become the open data site of the bank or the data site of the bank has become the most widely used site in the entire bank group. That's how popular and it is. The second is to say working with our client countries and, and helping them open up its data. Right, So mm -hmm. the governments have treasure trove of data. The governments collect a lot of data about a lot of things, whether it's census data, whether it's um, you know, transaction data, whether it's other economic data, and so on. And, and, but oftentimes that data remains in siloed within the government, and it's not easily accessible to others. What we've seen with our own data, that when you make the data available openly, there's a lot of innovation that happens with that data, that people use it for analysis, for creating apps, for... So the point being that there's a lot of value in the data that has been hidden if it's not open, that mm -hmm. is locked. So if the governments can open up the data, then it allows the entrepreneurs, the civil society, the, the citizens to, to make use of data increases transparency, improves social accountability, but also over time would lead to innovations that help inform citizens about specific services, you know, informing about the bus routes, informing about the train times, depends on the type of data, right? So one of the big challenges with open data has been um, that there's a lot of, I guess, impetus and discussion uh, our focus in the last few years around the supply side of data, like how to make the data open. But now we as the bank and the countries are beginning to focus on, on, on what data is valuable, uh, how do you make use of the data, and, and kind, of the, kind of focusing more on the demand side of data, right? Because not all data is equally valuable, not all data necessarily needs to be open either. Mm -hmm. So the question is, what is the data that, that will allow innovation to happen particular problems to be solved and addressed, and therefore let's focus on the data, but let's also focus on the ecosystem, uh, whether, it's the, whether it's the media or the civil society or the private sector, who might then take the data and make sense of it and use it for, uh, for solving specific problems or informing the citizens and so on. Right. So it sounds like almost a way of 
uh, of fostering global cross pollination of of ideas. So you were talking about the the Philippine taxis and sensors, and having been to India, I would imagine that's probably the type of thing that that might be helpful for the Indian government, Indian society to eventually incorporate into how roads and traffic and, and transportation works in India. <laughs> yes or no? We, we hope that over time, more and more of this data would become uh, more openly available. Okay, and the World Bank's development marketplace is another key driver of funding for development projects. Since being founded in 1998, the program has awarded more than $60 million in grants to more than 1,200 projects. How has the program evolved over the years since its founding? That's a good question. So what we've learned over a period of time through working with these enterprises, working with these people who we had funded through these grants, is that financing, while very important for some of these ideas, some of these enterprises to, to grow and sustain, finance alone cannot usually scale some of these enterprises or some of these business models. When we started the program many years ago, right, there was hardly anyone who was offering financing to some of these socially-minded individuals or enterprises. Times have changed. There's, there is a lot of funding available in many countries from impact investors, from angel investors, from, from uh, other institutions like USAID or DFID or, or other foundations. So what we realize is that our comparative advantage is to focus on other aspects uh, such as policy, such as building the capacity, uh, and, and looking at an overall ecosystem uh, which is very important for these institutions, these social enterprises, these models to grow and thrive and scale. So while financing remains important, uh, we've, we've, we've kind of shifted our focus on working with the local and regional partners who often bring the financing, who are closer to these enterprises, and also working with them to build kind of the capacity of these enterprises. What we've learned is that the, the entrepreneurs are, um, you know, especially the social entrepreneurs who are very social impact driven, they often need capacity in terms of how to organize this business, how to think about business models, how you, do you think about scaling, and, and, and they need a lot of help in terms of thinking through their models as, as they evolve. And that's another area where we, again, partnering with local institutions who work with these enterprises who build the capacity. We also looking at the public sector and the World Bank operations because, you know, most of the countries, the public services are, are provisioned by governments. And there's a government who have a large public serve kind of budget and spending. And, and the question is, how can, how can we tap into kind of government programs, whether through procurement, whether through public-private partnership or other policy means, which allows some of the social enterprises and kind of the overall social enterprise agenda to grow in the countries. Mm -hmm. Because you know, just as any other startup, many of these startups usually fail. So what we're looking at is to say, how can we make the ground more fertile for more innovations to happen? And, and the, the ones that are promising, the environment is conducive enough for them to grow. So, so kind of the program has evolved significantly since then. And we're looking at, you know, these different dimensions about financing, policy, public-private partnerships, working with local and regional institutions, and saying how can, we, uh, how can we help grow kind of social enterprise as a sector 
and not just focus on a social enterprise. We talked about big data being one of your areas of special interest earlier. Human-centered design is another one. How much do you see the wants and needs of the constituents that you serve changing around the world from country to country? So this is, this is again, one of those areas where um, we've seen lots of examples where how human-centered design has been used by the private sector mm-hmm. to create kind of the next product, for example, right? Sure. You know, everyone kind of is familiar with the ideas and the frogs of the world and mm-hmm. what they've done and some of the work they've done is amazing. Um, and the question we were asked is, can human-centered design be used to find solutions, get insights to some of the tricky problems that many of our client countries face? So let me give you an example. One of the key issues in sub-Saharan Africa, as well as parts of Asia, um, is chronic uh, malnutrition of kids under the age of five. And many countries struggle with addressing that problem systematically. And and there are still pockets, whether it's indigenous population, whether it's rural population, uh, or people who are living way below the poverty line, um, have, have, it's been, it has been difficult for for, for the donors, for the aid agencies, for the governments to really you know, make significant progress in that area in some countries. So then the question becomes, what else can we do, right? If the, if the current interventions, if the current models aren't working or aren't working as well as uh, we, we need them to, um, how, do, how do you find new solutions? And, and, and one of the approaches we are testing is the use of human-centered design. So we're working, for example, with a health team um, and with the government of Madagascar who has, uh, one, who has this challenge, especially with kind of rural remote population as well as indigenous population where the malnutrition problem is still persistent. And, and, and we, are, we are testing, um, applying the human-centered design in, in kind of in doing the field work, doing the, to, to get better understanding of why, why the, the current interventions aren't working, uh, better understanding kind of the cultural um, and the social context, and saying can the application of human-centered design uh, lead to new insights and probably some new interventions that can be tested. So... So we, we, we are doing this very mindfully because, you know, we have to really see where it works, how it works, what are the conditions under it works, how much does it cost, what do you need, and so on. Because, you know, again, as you can imagine, many of the countries and governments working cannot usually afford to, you know, pay big sums of money to some of these consulting companies to do some of this work, right? It's one thing where a private sector company may hire one of these you know, companies to deliver product and, and because they have millions and billions of dollars on the line. But it's, very diff- it's, it's another thing where the resources are already very tight and, 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 and to invest in, in a process or an approach which hasn't been fully tested yet. So you gave a recent TEDx Mid-Atlantic talk on the future of global development being local. And one of the things that you talk about in that TEDx talk is how crucial entrepreneurship is at the local level to driving innovation and improving quality of life. Why do you think social and local entrepreneurship is such a key driver of solving problems? So, you know, as I, as I, as I said in my, my, my TED talk, um, there are many millions and billions of people around the world still lack access to basic services like clean water, 
or sanitation, primary health care, education, and so on. Uh, many countries, significant portion of the population is remains unserved by the government or the large, large private sector mm -hmm. or underserved by the government and the large private sector. Um, and especially the population that is kind of the poorest of the poor, you're talking about kind of the bottom 20% of the poor population, which, which is hard to reach for oftentimes for the government and which is also difficult in terms of market to crack for the private sector in terms of affordability and reach and so on. So now, now, therefore, the choice is the following, right? Do we wait till the government are able to reach these poor people and deliver basic services, which might take years? Or do we find solutions uh, that are often developed and created by these entrepreneurs who are in the field, who are very socially conscious and, and, and are driven by trying to bring about these solutions through kind of the innovative business models. Uh, because remember, here we are talking about a very difficult kind of environment to, to kind of deliver these services, right? Mm -hmm. These are people who, um, you know, uh, uh, the affordability is very low, they might be hard to reach, uh, and, and their needs are usually very different than, than kind of the people in, who are in the middle class, so to speak. So... Entrepreneurs, uh, and, and this has become a very positive growing ten, trend over the last uh, few years. When we started the Development Marketplace program, this was thought of as one of the first kind of most innovative programs that we, will, we, are, we were funding, um, you know, individuals and enterprises with this. It's, it's no longer uh, many countries, India, uh, many countries in Africa, for example, there's a budding kind of network or budding uh, population of people and enterprises called social enterprises who are, uh, you know, creating solutions to the problems that I just m talked about. Mm -hmm. So the problems, you know, faced by, um, uh, by the poor as the poor um, require a deep understanding of the context, understanding uh, of the social norms and, and so on. And, and oftentimes, some, the solutions to this problem um, requires kind of an integrated approach, right? So, for example, if you're trying to improve health outcomes, you might also need to look at sanitation. You might also need to look at clean water. Um, you know, typically, uh, if you are the government uh, or an aid institution, you, you are you're typically, um, you know, uh, the water ministry is looking at delivering water. Um, you know, the Ministry of Healthcare is trying to uh, deliver healthcare. But the social enterprises, they don't care about whether whether I need clean water or I need a clinic or I need more awareness and so on. They are trying to solve a problem in a community and they will innovate around that problem, right? So if it means that it's a combination of raising awareness, if it means it's a combination of delivering clean water uh, through water ATM types of model, if it's a combination, of uh, you know setting up clinics or being tie-ups with the government, like they will, they 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 have the agility, they have the flexibility, and and they have kind of the mindset of solving a particular problem regardless of what it takes, right? So they are not bound by kind of the sectoral lenses that the governments or the aid agencies are usually bound by, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So we 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 believe that that the the social entrepreneurs have. Uh, role to play, especially kind of bridging the last mile service delivery gap where the governments nor the private sector are able to bridge or will take a long time for for them to reach. Yeah. They also 
uh, we also look at the social enterprises and kind of the innovative business models um, as a learning mechanism. So what, what we're trying to do is to get the knowledge and the evidence base and the learning and informing kind of the government programs as well who might be able to adopt those learnings into their programs and interventions. So one, they, the, the, the enterprises um, are playing and can play an important role in bridging kind of the service delivery gap, but they can also be thought of as kind of a test bed for innovations and learning that can be adopted and scaled by other institutions, be it government or large private sector. Okay, very nice. So let me ask you a little bit about specific technologies. Social, mobile, and big data are three that have opened up lots of possibilities in the development space. Are there others coming down the pipeline that you see as being vital in the developing world? There are a few that that I'm particularly excited about. And I think the, the first and the foremost one, I would say, is, is kind of the clean technologies, right? So, you know, whether it's solar or wind or any other clean technology you're talking about, especially on the energy side, you know, and, and, and the analogy I see it as, think of it as the following, right? So just as, you know, once the mobile technology came on board, right, the, the, the most of the countries or many countries in the developing world uh, stopped building landlines, right? So they were able to leapfrog to a technology uh, that, that was better, faster, and cheaper, and, and that, that could reach the masses. And I see kind of clean technology as a, as a similar opportunity for many of the developing countries to kind of leapfrog. Mm-hmm. Right, so you you're not then bound by the traditional means of doing business or delivering uh, the the services. For example, you can you can you can you can start thinking of a very different model, whether it's decentralized electricity, whether it's uh, a, a cheaper way to deliver clean water, or what what might have you. The other areas which are also exciting, but but somewhat unclear in terms of how they would they would impact the economies is. I would say 3D printing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, it's it's a similar thing where we 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 already seen use of 3D printing for for building skills um, in in higher education in 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 kind of the education system at large. But but I I, I see that that area will grow. That that the 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 cheaper the 3D printers get, the easier they they become accessible. You'll see more and more creativity and innovation in manufacturing. It will allow for local manufacturing to happen. Hopefully, it will allow a lot more entrepreneurs to come because now you're reducing the barrier to entry. Mm-hmm. You don't have to set up you know machines or or buy or uh, lease machines that cost maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, to prototype to develop your idea and so on. So. So I think that's an area where where we've, we've not yet seen a lot of practical kind of applications come out, but I think it's an area that that that, that has a potential to be, I would say, positively disruptive uh, in the coming few in, in in the years to come. And of course, some of the other areas that are um, that, that are exciting or or maybe important are kind of the sensors or the whole uh, kind of notion of Internet of Things. Mm-hmm. Um, 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 UAVs, uh, aka drones, also uh, bear a lot of potential uh, for the countries, whether to use for disaster risk uh, management, for um, for for better planning around land rights. Um, we recently did a project in 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 Kosovo, for example. So one of the challenges that there's a par- parts of Kosovo face where women don't have um, clear property or land rights. 
and 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 one of the challenges that for to establish that you need very clear cut kind of maps uh, as a starting point to better understand uh, you know what's there and then who owns what and so on. So mm-hmm. we. We we worked with uh, our teams in the in the urban ne- um, network. We worked with the government of Kosovo um, and did a like a week and a half project where 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 we we used the drone to to create the detailed maps, uh, which will now feed into the landline. So th- again, uh, I see increasing use of of that technology. The other technology which might seem far out but but might become very valuable from a government public sector point of view is also blockchain. Mm-hmm. which is the most familiar use has been bitcoin or cryptocurrency right, right. but again it blockchains allows kind of the reduces the transaction cost and allows for transparency that can be used for uh, land records management for example or or managing public records of other kind right so i think that's an area that is likely to emerge uh, as well and and the last one i would say um, is is kind of artificial intelligence right and you know I, I'm not sure where this will go, but but I often wonder what kind of impact it would have on on jobs, on skills, and so on. I mean, if if the cars start driving themselves, if the uh, you know robots begin to do a lot of work, then 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 how do you, if you are an emerging economy, how do you think about your youth uh, 20 years down the line? What kind of jobs will they have? Will they continue to have uh, jobs like I don't know call centers, for example? If if IBM Watson or one of those technologies can can answer your calls, would you need people to do that job, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's an area where I see both one uh, a positive uh, kind of. Uh, uh, maybe opportunity for the developing countries to to start building the skills, but also potentially negative effect if you're not prepared ahead of time of what's coming 20 years down the line. It could have very negative impact on on your labor markets, on your jobs, on your education, skilling programs, and so on. So, so I, I, I largely, I mean, I mean, I think one has to be optimistic, and I see that this will have a lot of positive impact. Some of these technologies in the future, but if not properly understood and if not properly kind of forecasted it might also create some challenges for for some of the economies that we work in okay nice well adarsh last question if there are listeners out there with a keen interest in some of the subject matter that we've talked about today or the innovation labs at the world bank is there anything they can do to support you in the initiatives that are currently underway in the innovation labs at the world bank yes absolutely i think we are always looking for people with good ideas with expertise uh, who want to use their their skills, expertise, enthusiasm for solving some of the difficult challenges in the world, um, and especially entrepreneurs who have either developed solutions uh, that that tackle some of these challenges, but also individuals who might have you know advanced skill sets, whether it's big data or artificial intelligence, etc., who want to use those skills uh, or have ideas that could that could create a lot of social good. I can't necessarily tell you exactly how they can uh, kind of become part of the programs, but we are always open to to listening to their ideas and exploring how they can participate or contribute to the work uh, that that we are doing. So we're always happy to connect and learn uh, and also share our experiences. So. Uh, to the listeners, I would appeal if you are interested, uh, want to do something uh, for good, um, just reach out to us. We're more than happy to talk to you and, and see how, uh, how, how, how we can leverage your expertise or skill sets in, in any of the work that we are doing. 
Very nice. Well, as you can hear, they're right here in the heart of Washington, D.C., where there's never a dull moment. Uh, look up Adarsh Desai online, the World Bank Group's Innovation Labs. Uh, Adarsh, thanks so much for joining us today to talk about some of what you have underway here at the Innovation Labs. Thanks a lot, Will. I really enjoyed this conversation. If you'd like to learn more about Adarsh Desai, you can follow him on Twitter at, at Adarsh Desai. That's A-D-A-R-S-H-D-E-S-A-I. You can also read his blog posts on the World Bank's website at blogs.worldbank.org slash team slash Adarsh hyphen Desai. Thanks once again to Adarsh Desai for joining us, and thank you for joining us. Don't forget to tune in to the next episode of the podcast, when we're excited to have a first, a longtime listener of the podcast, Pete Kale will be coming on as a guest. We'll be talking with Pete about taking the long view and how it can help fuel innovation efforts at your company. Among the topics we'll discuss are why being able to think long-term is a powerful tool for anyone looking to boost their innovation capacity, why every one of us is a designer, whether we know it or not, and what the Halloween asteroid can teach us about probability, chance, and playing the Powerball. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. The Innovation Engine Podcast is recorded, produced, edited, and published by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. For more information on the company or our services, please visit our website at www. .3pillarglobal.com You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or SoundCloud, and you can also download our very own iOS app in the iTunes App Store.